Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. I bet you women would like to know what men are really thinking. The truth, the honest truth of what men are really thinking. Because I, I could tell you. Would you like to know? All right, I'll tell you. Nothing. We're not thinking anything. We're just walking around, looking around. This is the only natural inclination of man. To just kind of check stuff out. We work because they force us to, but other than that, this is the really only thing we want to do. We like women, we want women, but that's pretty much as far as we've thought. That's why we're honking car horns, yelling from construction sites. These are the best ideas we've had so far. It's a special joke to offend both men and women in the audience. So uh, you can tell that joke maybe hasn't aged well, but I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. That was, of course, Jerry Seinfeld, who was star of the TV show after his own name. Any Seinfeld fans out there? Oh, quite a few of you. Good, then you all know that, like that, like that joke, that Seinfeld is famously a show about... Nothing. That's right. That's the entire premise of the show. They're just four friends going through life together and uh, calamity ensues, right? Episodes are usually uh, truncated, right? There's no overarching storylines and they can be summed up with words like yada yada, man hands, and a certain kind of soup distributor, right? This is the what's made known about the show. Of course, the largest joke of the entire show is how it ended, which as the show came to a finale, all of the main characters are found guilty of criminal indifference. They observe someone being mugged, and instead of helping, they record it, and because of a new law that's just been uh, implemented, all of them are thrown in jail for criminal indifference. The reason why this is perfect is because they end up getting in trouble for doing the very thing that the entire show is all about nothing, right? They end up doing nothing and suffer for it, and uh, that's pretty much our Bible story for today. Uh, so uh, that's the correlation that we're going to be building off of. We're in a series looking at the minor prophets. These are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. We've been exploring how these ancient prophecies that were written at a certain time and for a certain people, but find themselves here in our Bibles some 2,500 years later, what's the practical relevance that they have to our lives? What's the point while we're, why we're having them in there? But to do that, we have a lot of history to learn. These books are full of references and descriptions that we don't necessarily get, much like a newbie watching Seinfeld for the first time. Yes, I just went there with that correlation, right? And today is really no exception. We're going to be talking about the book of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah. How many of you have heard of the book of Obadiah before? A few of you. How many have read the book of Obadiah? Okay, how many of you didn't know Obadiah was a word until about three seconds ago, and now you're just catching up? It's going to be, uh, if you want to slip your hands up and follow along in the Worship Center Bibles, it's going to be on page 435. Uh, otherwise, good luck finding it in your own Bible. Uh, it is nestled in the back. It's a very, very short book, 21 verses. And uh, if you want to follow along today, I'm going to give you plenty of time to turn there, but you can slip your hand up to use one of the Worship Center Bibles. Uh, as I said, Obadiah is a small book. It's literally the smallest book 
book in the Old Testament, a whopping 21 verses. And really all that we know about the book of Obadiah is what he tells us about himself in the book. He doesn't list any kings. He doesn't list any real connection points. What we know is from tradition and what he identifies with us in the book. Did I mention that it's only 21 verses? So uh, we're going to read through it like five times today. And uh, I'm just going to throw some stuff out. No, we've got more to uh, build off of than that. But while the book may not give us many answers, the book gives us a lot of insight into the people of God and the person of God and the time and place at which Obadiah is speaking. Now, Obadiah is a later prophet. You may remember last week we kind of talked about how after David and Solomon's reign that the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, Israel and Judah. And so this is a story about the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom falls last week when we were talking about Hosea and about the year 722 to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, falls some 150 or so years later in the year 586 BC to the Babylonians. Now Obadiah actually comes after the fall of Jerusalem, after the fall of the southern kingdom. So he's a little bit after that date of 586 BC. But what's interesting about Obadiah is that his prophecies aren't even necessarily related to the fall of those two kingdoms, which is, as we walk through the minor prophets, what a lot of them are going to be focused on. Instead, his prophecy, he's identified as a different group of people, a different culture, a different subset in the area. His prophecy is against the Edomites the people of Edom. That word may be familiar to you, you Old Testament scholars, you, uh, but the people of Edom are actually descendants from Esau. Esau, you may recall, was the brother of Jacob. They were twins fighting from birth, and if you recall any of the story, you know that they had a contentious relationship, right? Esau was the firstborn after all, right? He was after dad's own heart. He was an outdoor kid. He loved hunting and fishing. His features were described as ruddy, which moms, if your baby is described as ruddy, I don't know how you'd feel about that, but probably not great. Uh, Edom also means red, and that's because Esau had kind of a red complexion, whether that was his skin color, whether it was a result of him being outside or had to do with his hair color, but that's where the nickname Edom comes from. Esau is the father of the Edomites, the children of Esau, and they're kind of always in contention with the children of Jacob, the children of of Israel. You may recall from the story that Jacob was a mama's boy, right? Jacob is an indoor kid, right? His name meant deceiver or heel grabber, and he lives up to his name. He steals his brother's birthright over a cup of soup, um, which is a little bit sketchy no matter how you slice it. And then he dresses up like his brother Esau. He sneaks into his dad's presence. He tricks him into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, which was a huge, huge deal in this ancient culture. So all of that to say that in order to understand the story today, we have to understand a bit of that story in history. So since Obadiah is so short, 21 verses, if you're doing the reading challenge this week, don't just read Obadiah, but I put some verses up there at the top, Genesis 25 through 32. Those are chapters. If you just want to get reacquainted with the story of Jacob and Esau to better understand the book of Obadiah, start there. You'll have some time to read that this week before you jump into Obadiah. So 
Obadiah has this contrast between uh, this long-standing feud, because the feud doesn't end with Jacob and Esau. If you read those stories, they actually reconcile pretty well. Before their time ends, they become brothers again, they become friends again, and they trust each other again. The same thing cannot be said, though, for their descendants. And the Old Testament, if you read through it, is literally tracing the lineage of these two families, kind of squabbling back and forth. They're kind of like the original Hatfield and McCoys. They're just at each other's throats here and there, never quite agreeing. Like, here's one example. You may remember about 400 years after Jacob and Esau, the Israelites are delivered by Moses from Egypt, and they're walking to get to the promised land. To get to the promised land, the the quickest route, the shortest route, the safest route is through the nation of Edom. Edom is their cousins, right? They're 400 years removed, but they're still family. They're still kins. And so Moses, leading the Israelites, sends a message to the king of Edom. And he says, hey, brothers, family, cousins, friends, can we just walk through your land? We promise not to take any food. We, we won't touch the water. We won't do anything except walk peacefully through. Brothers, will you let us? The king of Edom responds, as you would expect in a family feud, if you step one foot onto our land, we will destroy you. XO, love cousins. Right? This is just the story, and it builds from there. They're constantly against each other, and this goes on and on and on throughout the centuries, and it's recorded in the Old Testament. What does this family history have to do with a later prophet some thousand years later in Obadiah? And the answer is everything. Obadiah is addressing the Edomites after the fall of the kingdom of Judah. And while their words may be focused on them in this particular passage, we see that the message that he proclaims is universal for all people of all times, including us today. That's because the central theme as we go throughout these books, I'm trying just to give you one thing to hang your hat on. The central theme of the book of Obadiah is addressing pride. Pride, specifically that pride makes us self-absorbed and therefore indifferent to the sufferings of those around us. Pride makes us self-absorbed and indifferent to what's going on, specifically the sufferings of people and places around us. Uh, So hopefully I've given you enough time to turn to Obadiah. Hopefully you found it nestled there in the back. If not, of course, all the verses are going to be on the screen. Let's jump in here at verse 2. This is God speaking through the prophet Obadiah to the nation of Edom. He says, See, I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. I think as we go through the minor prophets, you'll see how encouraging these scriptures are how life-giving they are for you. I hope you discover that, right? But this is one of the hard things about reading prophetic literature is that it's kind of doom and gloom. It's pretty angsty. It's pretty antagonistic. And part of that is just understanding and reframing this history that we're talking about. But really what's going on here, other translations say that the Lord will cut you down to size. Some imagery for us today might be somebody whose head has gotten too big for themselves. They're overthinking their body. They're prideful and what they have and what they've gained. And the Lord says, I'm going to put you back down into your proper place. You think you're a big shot. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to make you small. Why? 
Because pride is something that God opposes. In the New Testament, we've talked about the verse that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In Proverbs chapter 6, God lists the things that God hates, and the very first one in that list is pride. Pride sets itself up in an antagonistic relationship with God. Pride sets itself up as the object that works against God. Pride doesn't need anyone, including God, and so God has some harsh words to address pride, again, specifically among the Edomites, but I think we'll find that it rings true for us today as well. Let's keep reading. We're in verse 3 of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The first thing for us to notice is that pride leads to self-deception. Pride leads to self-deceit. That's right away in verse 3 there. The pride of your hearts has deceived you. Let's give you some background here. You'll notice that they address the, the clefts in the rock, the heights, the, the height of the eagles soaring. Edom as a nation, as a people, lived high in the mountains on the other side of the Israel Valley. They lived up in rock fortresses that they built and carved out of the rock. Their crowning jewel was the community of Petra, which may look familiar to to you if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, but this is what we're talking about. They would carve out huge dwelling places for themselves, fortified cities far away and high up in the rocks. An ancient Greek scholar is recorded as saying that 12 men could defend Petra, an entire city, versus an entire army. And the reality is that the people of Edom were proud of their safety and security. They were incredibly prideful about what they had gained through their hard work. And this is the dangerous thing about pride. It's that it just doesn't stop at being proud, but it becomes self-deceptive. It becomes about self-sufficiency. Look how strong we are. We don't need help. Look how powerful we are. We don't need anyone but us. Look at how wise we are. Not even God could bring us down from this place. This is the dangerous path of pride. Pride takes credit for what God has already done. We see this in the story of Lucifer, the angel of light who thought that he could do it better than God and instead found himself cast down. It's in the story of Adam and Eve who thought that they could be like God, ignoring his commands, and they were punished for it. We see this at the Tower of Babel. Let's build a tower to the heavens and then we'll be like God or the rich young ruler, so prideful in what he possessed that he was unable to let go of anything to follow after God. See, pride is not just self-confidence. It's not just a welling up of that feeling. Pride at its core is about self-sufficiency. When you don't need God, that's when pride has set its roots deep into you. It's a good thing we're just talking about Edom 2,500 years ago, right? What do we just commemorate, right, this past week, long weekend? Speaking of which, I don't know if the long weekend helped, but I've never heard you guys clap better than this morning. So uh, I'm just going to say, take a couple long weekends off. It makes you worship better. So do that more. But right, we just celebrated, we just celebrated Independence Day, right, which is a, a tremendous gift that we celebrate the freedom from oppression and tyranny, uh, breaking free from oppressive rules and governments. 
But too often what it becomes, what it's relegated to us today, we're so far removed from that tyranny and oppression that we don't even recognize it when it's in our backyard. I don't care which side of the political spectrum that you're on, we can't argue with the fact that there are some inhumane things happening along the borders of the United States as we try to figure out what to do with migrants that are crossing the border. Nobody's for the conditions that exist right now, but it's a large, large problem. My point here is simply this. What was a celebration of independence has become a celebration of America. Drop the A right? Where we stand up for our own selfish pride, where we think that we rule the world, where we speak loudly and carry a big stick. Not saying that there's anything wrong with having good old American heritage, but the problem becomes when we disconnect it from that tyranny and oppression and make it about us. Look how strong we are. Look how proud we are. Look how what it means to be an American. And we fail to see the areas where we are guilty of the same oppression and tyranny as we celebrate our independence from. Instead of being independent, we find ourselves incredibly guilty of, being, of inflicting dependence on others. And we can't simply turn a blind eye to that, not as Americans and certainly not as Christ followers. Pride is, has its roots today just as much as it does 2,500 years ago. So let's keep walking through the book of Obadiah. Let's see what we can learn from his prophecies as he addresses Edom. Perhaps he addresses us today as well. There are four sources of pride that, that he identifies and kind of deconstructs for us, and let's just walk through those together this morning. The first is pride in strength pride in strength, that we're strong enough that we are able to do this on our own. Back to verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and you make your home on the heights. You say to yourself, who can bring us down to the ground? Right now, imagine that you were Esau, that your birthright, your inheritance, your heritage was stolen from you by your brother, by your family, somebody that you trusted, that you cared about. What would your life look like? How would you react? You might structure your entire livelihood around being secure within yourself. You might build a place of protection by not trusting anyone. Self-reliance might become a virtue of your family tree. We don't want anybody else and we don't need anybody else. Don't trust anyone because everyone is just out to get you and stab you in the back. You take what's yours. You defend what's yours. This is the heritage of the Edomites. They built it on self-preservation, no matter the cost. Verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, Petra, this crowning jewel of Edom, was 3,400 feet above sea level. Think about the region that it's in, its proximity to the sea. This was very, very high up. It was also next to the Dead Sea, which plunges some 1,300 feet below sea level, which meant that Petra was kind of the original mile-high city at nearly five thousand feet of elevation in difference. And in their height, they viewed themselves as safe. Their enemies couldn't approach them from any easy angle. They thought themselves untouchable in the strength that they possessed. 
And when you think that you're untouchable, that no one can reach you, that you're safe and secure and immune, that's when you're prideful to its core. When you think you've got it all figured out, that you don't need to depend on anyone, that no one's as good as you, that you don't need to follow the rules because you're above them, pride is crouching at your door. Let's bring this to today, right? When scripture is outdated and archaic and the standards and rules don't apply to you because you've got this whole thing figured out, you might just be trusting in your own strength instead of in the strength that the Lord provides because the reality is that when we trust in our own strength, we leave no room to trust in the strength of a God who provides. When we think we're self-sufficient, We're missing out on what it is to be a follower of God, to be the people of God, and to have dependence on him as opposed to independence from him as an oppressive ruler figure. That's pride in strength. Number two, pride in wealth. Another source for pride is in our wealth, our possessions, the things that we own. Let's see how Obadiah addresses this with the Edomites. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? And if grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillage. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, you know that if thieves or robbers broke in, that they would take all that they want. That's what thieves and robbers do, but they wouldn't take everything. They would only take what they could carry, what they could contain, what they wanted. There would be a limit to the amount that they would steal. Same thing if you're harvesting grapes. You wouldn't take all the grapes. You leave some of them behind to be developed or for people who are in need. This was the culture they're in, but Obadiah is speaking here, and he says, that's not going to be the case for you. Edom, you're going to be destroyed to the core, pillaged. Everything that you have is going to be taken from you. Why such strong words for Edom? Because Edom's strength was not just in their defenses, but in these great cities, they would also carve out vaults in the stone. They didn't just have resources, they stockpiled those resources, they hoarded them from the rest of the world, and instead of using them to help people like the nation of Israel as they were facing destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, instead they just kept everything to themselves. They hoarded the wealth that was given given to them. They kept it all saved up for a rainy day. In other words, they took pride in the amount of wealth that they had. It became a source of security for them. We don't need to worry. Look at how much we have. Now, wealth in the 21st century is a little bit of a difficult conversation, right? In the sense that we're not saying you shouldn't have a savings account. We're not saying you shouldn't have retirement, 401k, all those kinds of things. But what we are saying is when you place your trust in those structures, when your confidence comes from the wealth that you accumulate, then you have a sense of pride that comes from that and you miss the God opportunity to speak to you in those places. If the wealth that you have, that you possess, takes the place of God's protection and provision in your life, then you're losing the battle with pride that comes from your wealth. This is like the story of the rich young ruler, right? The simplest way to know if your pride is in your wealth is if you're able to obey God when he asks you to give it away. If not, 
And you'll find yourself at the end of Matthew's words, at the end of Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is for your bank account, your 401k, your savings plans, your retirement plan, then that's where your heart is going to find itself attached to as well. But God calls us to be at the place where our treasure is found in nothing less than him and where the wealth that we have is a blessing that we receive from him, not something that we possess and take our own prideful gain from seeing, from the numbers that we accumulate. Pride in wealth leads us to destruction because instead of seeing that as a gift from God, we think that it's ours to hold on to, to possess. Instead of it being a gift and a blessing, it becomes a curse as we hold on to it and it shrivels in our hands. Pride in our own strength, our physical prowess, pride in our wealth, what we can accumulate and fight for. The third is pride in our relationships, pride in relationships. Obadiah verse 7, we're just trucking along right here. All your allies will force you to the border. These are Edom's allies. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. You can see here that the correlation is kind of weaving down for them. Part of Edom's strength was in its alliances that it had. In other words, we don't need to reach out and protect our friends Israel, our brothers and sisters, our cousins. We don't need to fight for them. All we need to do is be protected on our north and our south. We have Egypt who will protect us. We have the people in the north and Samaria who will protect us. We don't need to overextend ourselves. The word trap there is well translated in the sense that it means a betrayal. One who dips their hand in the bread with you is the one who will set up a trap to contain you, who will betray you. This is the honest translation that exists therein. The reality for Edom is they didn't need God because they had allies. They had friends to protect them until they didn't, when Edom itself fell. And this isn't something that's hard for us to understand, right? Has anybody ever been betrayed or let down by a friend? Absolutely, right? Of course we have, right? Part of that is because people let us down. And if we put our trust in people, we will always find ourselves lacking to some degree, which will lead us with two choices. Either we fight through the distrust and betrayal and we learn to trust again, or we find ourselves pulling back and trusting in no one. Neither is a great opportunity for us. I think the reality looks something like this, right? I love my wife, Melissa. I would do anything for her. I would strive my best every single day to never let her down. Do you think that's a reality for me? Absolutely not. Somebody's laughing. That's not polite. <laughs> of course it's not, right? We are not perfect in relationship, in relation to each other. It's just not a realistic standard. We are going to let other people in our lives down. But the heartbeat that we bring into that is far more important. And when we trust our relationships in God, in Jesus, and someone who will never forsake us, never let us down, then we find the strength and encouragement, not only for that relationship of trust, trust, but to trust other people even when they betray us and let us down, even when they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, because we have a relationship that fulfills us to our core. And when we take pride in our connections and the people around us, and we fail to take that pride into our relationship with God, then we're ripe for destruction to come. Because relationships, no matter what, no matter when, will let us down. There's only one place that we know of that we will never be 
abandoned in that relationship sense. Pride in our strength, pride in our wealth, pride in the relationships and connections that we have. Fourth and final one here for the Edomites, the pride found in wisdom. Pride in wisdom. Verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, right? Edom here begins to shift as you continue reading in Obadiah from just being its own private nation to being an example for the rest of the world. In other words, what Obadiah is drawing a line to is that the pride found in Edom is present in every nation and every place and every people in the world, and God will treat them them all the same. He will move on his behalf to counteract and work against pride in all its forms. The correlation here is that the men of Esau, the men of Edom, thought they were high and mighty. They had it all figured out. Look how smart we are. Look how strong we are. We're up high in the mountains. Everything's going to be fine. We are so smart that we don't need God. We don't need his obedience. We don't need to follow his commands or trust in his promises. We've got it all figured out. When you're too smart for God, you're obviously in trouble, but we're no different today. We take security in our wisdom. We pit science versus faith as if they're on opposing ends of the spectrum. We trust in the latest Google article, the latest Facebook ad, so much so that it can sway entire courses of our nation. But when it comes to this book, we tend to go, eh, it's a little outdated. It's a little hard to understand. I don't know if God really meant or if God really said, and we take our wisdom, the wisdom of man, the wisdom of Facebook ads, whatever you want to put in there, and we take that with more credit than we do God's word, which we believe has instructions, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength, but we find ourselves trusting in those human sources instead of connecting with the wisdom of God, which is better by far than anything else that we could possibly list. This is not just the condition of Edom, right? This is the condition of ourselves as well. I stumbled across this quote as I was researching. This is a quote from Abraham Lincoln. It's from the National Day of Prayer and Fasting, the first inaugural day in 1863. Listen to Lincoln's words as he penned them over 100 years ago and see what connects with us today as well. Here's how he puts it. We, speaking of the nation have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers and wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. 
150 some years ago, and yet I still feel like it rings true today. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride ultimately leads to self, to be focused on who we are and what we have and what's going on in our own life. Pride turns the scope of our life from being outward focused to God and his kingdom and ultimately makes it about us. And when we become about us, we become not only indifferent to the things of God, but indifferent to others around us. Pride watches people victimized time and time again. And again, this isn't just the people of Edom. This is stories that we can recall from the news cycle of people who are finding themselves at, at birthday parties and a fight erupts. Uh, what, at a baseball game not too long ago, yelling at a 13-year-old umpire. And the reason that we have story after story to tell is because people are standing there doing what? Recording it on their cell phone. Instead of engaging, instead of stopping a fight, instead of stepping in to help, people are indifferent. They're standing back and they're recording going, I bet this is going to go viral. There are entire groups of people, right? Influencers on social media whose sole job is to sit back and to influence the social normative things that happen. Pride leads us to selfishness, and selfishness leads us to indifference. The result is a selfish indifference that takes precedent over everything in our lives. It's called the bystander effect. It's actually what that last finale of Seinfeld is entirely based on, that when there's more people around, we're more apt to stand at the side and observe and do nothing instead of help in, humble ourselves, and actually help out. Not just today, this is 2,500 years old from Edom. As you roll throughout scripture, you see time and time again where God has a harsh word for these people. Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 35, Malachi, Lamentations, all over the place. God is bringing judgment against the nation of Edom. He's calling them to account for their actions, which leads us to the question, what did Edom do that was so wrong? Sure, they were prideful, but we see that across the nation. We see that in ourselves. What is Edom so guilty of? What did they do to deserve such judgment? And the answer is simple. Nothing. They did nothing. They saw the nations around them suffering. They saw their brothers and sisters being persecuted. They saw nations destroyed. And what they chose to do was nothing. It was to sit back and watch, to record it on the proverbial cell phone camera that didn't exist yet. Look at how this, these verses continue, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Verse 11. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Don't miss this. You were like one of them. Because you stood by and you did nothing. Because of the violence that you committed against your brother Jacob, Edom did nothing. But God says nothing was as good as being the person swinging the sword. When you see suffering and you do not help, you are guilty, the Lord says, of not stepping in. Edom laughed and celebrated as Jerusalem collapsed, and the Lord says that is intolerable. But again, this is just as prevalent to us today as it was then. Have you ever celebrated someone's misfortunes? 
Have you ever been happy when the guy who sped past you got pulled over two miles down the road? That might have happened yesterday on my way home, right? Right? This is us because we see these things happen and we go, that's intolerable. Something should happen. We say Israel got what they deserved and Edom stood by and did nothing. And when we're not doing anything wrong, we're simply not doing anything. Verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, Esau, Edom, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. The message here is clear. Edom did nothing. And so at the time of judgment, at the time when they're going to want grace and mercy, at the time where they're begging for someone to save them, to intercede on their behalf, the Lord says, just as you did, it will be returned to you. You did nothing, and so nothing you will receive. That may remind you of the parable of the sheep and the goats that Jesus tells, right? Where at the end of time, he says, you fed the sick, you clothed the hungry. When did we do those things, Lord? When you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And the goats on the other side say, when did we see you in prison? When did we have the opportunity? And Jesus says, you didn't do it for anyone else, and so I won't do it for you. See, indifference becomes a sin when we're no longer moved by the world around us. Too often in our Christian life, we become obsessed with sins of commission, right? With let's not do the wrong things. Let's not be mean. Let's watch our language. Let's do all the things that we're trying to teach our kids not to do. Don't do bad things. But we miss the sins of omission, the sins where we have something good to do, but we fail to do it where we omit the good that God calls us to do because it's hard or difficult or because we'd rather just stay put. I mean, you've no doubt heard the quote from Edmund Burke that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, good people to do nothing. Pride becomes our greatest sin when it leads us to do nothing. When it leads us to just go through our lives one step after another, being self-absorbed and self-focused and ignoring the plight of the world around us. When we miss the opportunity that God has given us to see the places where we could do good in the world. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing one more song here. And as we enter into a time of prayer, I just want to draw your attention to those spaces. So if you could take up a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you, you may want to bow your head, fold your hands. You may just want to sit in a peaceful state. But I want you to think about the places in your life that you have seen perhaps suffering. Or perhaps you felt the small nudge from the Spirit to, to step in. Maybe it's a neighbor who's been going through something and you don't know what it is, but you notice that the cars aren't coming and going at the same time. Maybe it's a, a friend at work who you notice has shut down recently and you're just going, I wonder what's going on there. Maybe it's something you know, somebody has shared something with you, they've trusted you with something and you felt the Holy Spirit just kind of nudge you to say, what would it look like to care for them? Right? Pride is self-deception. It's when we become so focused on ourselves, but the answer to it is, of course, humility. Where do you need to humble yourself to step out for someone in need around you? Where might God be inviting you into his kingdom purpose in your life to set aside your agenda and to step into somebody else's plight? 
to instead of doing nothing, to step in and do something, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem, because when we step into those areas, we demolish the pride of our own lives by trusting in God and by finding ourselves at a place where we can make his kingdom come in our actions. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these places, God, places of brokenness and hurt, places where perhaps our first inclination is self-preservation to protect what we have, to be stronger, to trust in our wealth and our relationships, God, would you convict us of those areas where you are asking us to humble ourselves and to step in and to do something to change the outcome of a situation, to be your people, to be your church, whether it's a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member. God, the list is endless. Somebody on the street. God, somebody states away who's in deplorable living conditions that our heart just breaks for. God, would you help us not be guilty of standing by and doing nothing, but to do something, no matter how small it may feel, God, that we might tear down these places that we've built up that makes our life about us and instead see us as a kingdom player in your world and in the world that you call us to co-create with you. Jesus, the only way we can do this is through your power. And so we ask through your Holy Spirit that you would fill us, God, not for our selfish purposes, not so that we can have a comfy, cushy life, God, but so that we can make a difference in the lives of those around us. God, that's what we are called to give our lives to, and we can only do it through your strength. So, so Heavenly Father, would you allow us that perspective through the blood of your Son, Jesus, and through the power of your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us, that we might change the world around us through caring, through doing something instead of nothing. All God's kids agreed together and said, Amen.